0: By this opportunity, I shall send several pamphlets entitled War in Disguise, which are believed to have been written under the auspices of those in power. It is not doubted that the disposition exists to push measures with us to the full extent of the doctrines contained in that work, if circumstances favor. Their jealousy of us in every subsisting relation is as great as it can be. It is evident that we have no sincere friends anywhere." that all the powers with whom we have the most immediate relations are jealous of us, by some motives which are common to all. Without an attitude of menace and an evident ability, which will be judged of by the apparent means and determination to execute it if necessary, nothing will be gained of any of them, not even of Spain, the most feeble and vulnerable of all powers. The moral sentiment is weak with them all. James Monroe, November 1st 1805.
1: Coming from the administration's most trusted diplomat in Europe, James Monroe's assessment of the standing of the U.S. among its primary relations on that side of the Atlantic, Great Britain, France, and Spain, reflects a couple of years of frustrations and an inability to achieve any further victories at the negotiation table following the Louisiana Purchase. Before we get into examining Monroe's setbacks and what it meant for the Jefferson administration, I'd like to take this opportunity to welcome you to the presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Alicia from the Civics and Coffee podcast for providing the intro quote for this episode. On her podcast, Alicia covers various topics from American history each week and the amount of time that it takes you to drink a cup of coffee. In recent episodes, she's examined the Constitutional Convention the lives and careers of various influential American women, and she's now working her way through various topics related to the Washington presidency. So once you get done with this episode, grab a cup of coffee, tea, or any beverage of your choice and head over to civics and coffee that's all one word, dot com to check it out. I'll have the link posted on the source notes page for this episode, or you can search for civics and coffee on your favorite podcast app of choice. When last we left james monroe, he was in Paris on the way to his new special diplomatic mission to Spain. In mid-december, he left his family in the French capital and proceeded overland to Bordeaux, then Bayonne. The closer he got to Bayonne, the more difficult to travel, as the road to that city quote, went through marshy woodlands inhabited by Basque shepherds nimbly walking on stilts to keep them out of the mud and command an extensive view of their flocks. From there, monroe got the assistance of the U.S. agent at Bayonne. William Lee, to make arrangements which included procuring mules and dealing with border guards and customs officials, then made his way with his party across the Pyrenees to Madrid. They found the lodgings and villages along the way far from ideal, though Monroe did describe the Basque people as, quote, honest, hospitable, and possessed of sentiments more elevated than their appearance would inspire. As noted by Monroe biographer Tim McGrath, quote, The trip soon became routine, changing mules at every way station and sleeping with loaded pistols. Nothing better captures Monroe's challenges in Europe than the image of the six foot minister trapped in a small coach drawn by plodding mules over endless rocky terrain, the winter sun offering no warmth, the wind whistling harshly down the road. Finally, though, Monroe arrived in Madrid on New Year's Day, 1805, and found lodgings on the finest street in Madrid. Once settled, it was time to check in with the U.S. Minister to Spain, Charles Pinckney, to coordinate on how to approach the upcoming negotiations. Little did Monroe know, though, that Pinckney had a surprise for him. Despite being empowered to act on his own, Monroe's plan had been for the two ministers to work together, but Pinckney immediately offered to withdraw from the negotiations altogether so that Monroe would be unhindered in his work. Though Monroe noted Pinckney's weaknesses as a diplomat and had experienced his own share of headaches a couple of years prior in having to work with Livingston in negotiations with the French, Monroe decided to convince Pinckney to remain and join him in the work. Unlike with Livingston, Monroe would find in Pinckney a pleasant partner who deferred to him. The work of negotiating with Spanish First Minister Pedro Savalos in Madrid, however, would prove to be slow and frustrating. As described by McGrath, quote, The Americans approached negotiating as lawyers. Savalos viewed it as a chess match, leaving the door open for further talks one week, then angrily challenging American claims the next. Monroe also received word from French Foreign Minister Talleyrand that, quote, France not only denied America's rights to West Florida, they were also negotiating with Spain to acquire all of Florida. This gave an added sense of urgency to Monroe and Pinckney's efforts, as the last thing they needed was a French outpost within a stone's throw of the already vulnerable port of New Orleans. To that end, Monroe reached out to the Prince of Peace and power behind the throne, Manuel de Godoy. The relations between the two were pleasant. Godoy ultimately laid the responsibility for the West Florida quandary at Monroe's doorstep. As McGrath describes, Godoy, quote, admonished him for not entering the word Florida in the Louisiana Treaty and settling the whole business when Monroe had the chance. Seeing that they were getting nowhere, Monroe and Pinckney decided to go all in, and on May 12th, they sent their final offer to Cervalos. If Spain would agree to cede Florida to the U.S. and ratify the Convention of 1802, last discussed in episode 3.25, which Pinckney had negotiated settle claims against Spanish ships, The U.S. would agree to establish the Colorado River as the western boundary of the Louisiana Purchase, with a neutral zone all the way to the Rio Bravo, and the U.S. government would assume responsibility for resolving the disputed claims of French privateers that had not been resolved with the convention. Three days later, they got their answer. No deal. Five months of negotiation, and as Monroe requested his passports to return to his post in London, he was leaving empty-handed. While Pinckney would remain only so long as his replacement, James Baldwin III, arrived, the two diplomats would not end their partnership, however, before they put to pen their thoughts on the situation on may twenty fifth eighteen o five They wrote a confidential letter to Secretary of State Madison about the failure of their mission and the precarious state in which this unsettled position left the u s. Thus, they told Madison that quote, "We are therefore of opinion that it will be best to adopt the latter course." To take possession of both the Floridas and of the whole country west of the Mississippi to the Rio Bravo, unless it should be thought better to rest at the Colorado, though we think the broader the ground taken the better. In this view, all the Spanish ports should be broken up within those limits. On that ground, we might negotiate. Nothing like a spirit of compromise or apprehension of the consequences should be seen. The destiny of the new world is in our hands. We'll return to Monroe at some point in the not-too-distant future, but for the time being, let's pivot our attention back to the other side of the Atlantic and get caught up with some figures who had their own agendas and designs on the lands west of the Mississippi River. When we last saw former Vice President Aaron Burr in episode 3.27, he was waiting for General James Wilkinson in Philadelphia so that the two could travel down the Ohio River together. After weeks of waiting, Burr learned that Wilkinson was detained in Washington. Thus, on April 23, 1805, he boarded a westbound stagecoach bound for Pittsburgh. The first part of his journey would be on the recently constructed Lancaster Turnpike, which, quote, was the first rural road in America to have a foundation of stone under its gravel surface. While better than most roads, it was still described as, quote, a bruising experience. And the further he went on the journey west, the more rustic the experience would get for a man who had experienced the luxuries of urban life in New York. As Burr biographer Milton Lomas explains, though, there were, quote, no complaints from Burr. Years on the judicial circuit as a New York lawyer had prepared him for the discomforts of western travel. Upon his arrival in Pittsburgh, Burr found that Wilkinson was still detained and thus left a note before departing on a boat bound for Louisville, Kentucky on the 30th. On the journey down the river, Burr did find a temporary traveling companion. Representative Matthew Lyon, Democratic-Republican from Kentucky, was headed back to his home in Eddyville, Kentucky. The two parted company when they arrived in Marietta, Ohio, and it was at Marietta that Burr would, while visiting with friends, learn of someone whose name you'll want to remember. Harmon Blennerhassett, quote, was a Briton by birth and a member of an aristocratic Irish family. He and his wife were immigrants to the United States, arriving in the summer of 1796, Upon their arrival, Blennerhassett hassett got involved in a mercantile firm in Marietta, adding both to his personal wealth and, quote, the economic growth of the frontier along the Upper Ohio. For his home, Blennerhassett hassett quote, bought the upper half of an island 14 miles below Marietta on the Virginia side of the river and had converted its 179 acres into a showplace. On a rise of land visible from the river, The transplanted aristocrat had erected a 14-room, horseshoe-shaped mansion of poplar wood and oak and painted it a gleaming white. Fronting this impressive structure was a wide, sloping lawn flanked on one side by a 150-foot long graveled walk. A low hedge of privy sally edged the outer rim of the walk and served as a border for a two-acre flower garden, planted to exotic blooms and native shrubs, and broken by serpentine paths and little grottos dripping with honeysuckle and eggletines. One of Burr's friends had a package for Blennerhassett, quote, a microscope and slides for his scientific studies, and asked Burr to carry the package to Blennerhassett on his island. Burr arrived on this island somewhere between May 5th or 6th. There will be more to say about Blunner-Hassett in the future, but for now, let's continue Burr's journey to Cincinnati, Ohio, where he planned to attend a meeting of promoters of the Indiana Canal Company at the home of Senator John Smith, Democratic-Republican. Smith was described by Burr biographer Milton Lomas as, quote, a Virginian by birth, a handsome and large-framed man of rather solemn demeanor. Smith had migrated to the Northwest in 1790 to become prominent in its affairs, first as a Baptist minister, later as a merchant, grain mill operator, and supplier and contractor to the United States Army, and since the admission of Ohio to the Union in 1803, a senator from that state. Burr had gotten involved in the plans of the Indiana Canal Company, quote, in the hopes of getting money for his Western projects. Burr freely shared in this meeting, quote, his desire to lead a liberating expedition against the Spanish colonies, asserting, however, that he would take such action only in the event of war. And in addition to Senator Smith, there was another attendee who was keenly interested in what Burr had to say in this regard. This attendee is someone who we have mentioned in passing a few times, most recently in episode 3.18. Loma's description of him is as follows, Jonathan Dayton was in his 45th year that fall chunkily built, with a hawk-like face, his firm mouth wedged between heavy jowls. He and Burr had known each other since their mutual childhood in Elizabethtown, New Jersey, where Dayton still resided. During the war, they had marched to Quebec together under Benedict Arnold. Following the Revolutionary War, Dayton had risen in the ranks in the New Jersey State Assembly to ultimately become Speaker of that body and was a signer of the U.S. Constitution, the youngest person to do so. He was then elected to the U.S. House of Representatives and took his seat in 1791. As national politics became more partisan, Dayton aligned himself with the Federalists. In the Fourth Congress, he was elected as Speaker of the House. Now, longtime listeners of the podcast may be wondering whether I actually talked about Dayton in that role. In a reflection of just how unimportant the role of Speaker was at the time, I checked back in the transcripts and no, I never mentioned Dayton's time as Speaker on the podcast. Still, He retained that position until he was chosen by the State Assembly a few years later to represent the state in the U.S. Senate. Dayton only served one full term in the Senate and thus had left that body in March 1805, just as his former comrade in arms Burr had. Again, like Burr, Dayton had an interest in the future of the West. But for Dayton, it was more in a business sense. Quote, A heavy speculator, Dayton in recent years had acquired title to 25,000 acres of military land lying between the Little and Big Miami Rivers in the Northwest. Those familiar with Ohio geography may note that there is now a prominent city in that area of the state. Yes, indeed, dear listeners, Dayton, Ohio was named after Jonathan Dayton. At this point, though, again from Lomask, Dayton, quote, was interested in any development apt to increase the value of his investment, whether it took the form of a canal around the falls of the Ohio or an attack on the colonies of Spain. Burr continued on downriver from Cincinnati, stopping in to see Representative Matthew Lyon in Eddyville, before proceeding overland to Frankfort, Kentucky, to visit with former Senator John Brown, Democratic Republican from Kentucky, then on to Lexington, Kentucky, and Nashville, Tennessee. It's in Nashville that Burr spent some time with another person who has popped up from time to time in our narrative, but, spoiler alert, is destined to play a much larger role in the future. The former vice president stayed for five days at the residence of the former senator and former U.S. Representative Andrew Jackson. The Jackson's home at the time was not Jackson's now famous residence, the Hermitage, but rather quote, a plain square block house on the same site of what would become Jackson's mansion. Jackson biographer Robert Remini describes that, quote, Jackson was utterly charmed by the suave and cultivated Burr. He went out of his way to present his guests to Nashville Society and to make it appear that he and Burr were linked in affection and friendship. Burr used Jackson's connections to meet with prominent men in the area, and Jackson's position as Major General of the Tennessee state militia to get, quote, a list of officers for one or two regiments, from Colonel to ensign, who were fit for the business of war and with whom the general could trust your life and your honor. Burr also got Jackson to arrange the construction of, quote, five large boats to be used for descending the river and the procurement of a store of provisions. Again from Remini, quote, Jackson was now an accomplice. Jackson never revealed precisely what Burr said to him. Other than to insist it in no way involved treason, but he clearly believed the orders for the boats and provisions were intended for an assault on the Spanish in Florida and beyond the Louisiana Territory. For Jackson, as for many Americans in the Southwest, an undeclared war against the Spanish posed no problem. They were totally committed in their minds to further expansion southward and westward. For some, including Andrew Jackson, even Mexico,
0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. After Burr
1: left Nashville, he made his way to Fort Massac, described as, quote, a lonely military post on the northern shores of the Ohio, near where that river spills into the Mississippi. It was at this outpost that Burr finally met up with the long-delayed General James Wilkinson. Wilkinson had followed Burr's trail closely, even conferring with Jonathan Dayton in Cincinnati shortly after Burr's departure. When Burr made his detour to Nashville, that allowed Wilkinson an opportunity to overtake him in his journey down the Ohio River. The two met for four days before parting ways once more. Burr left first and continued on his journey down the Mississippi River. Wilkinson remained for a bit longer before proceeding on his journey to St. Louis at which he arrived on July 3rd to assume office as governor of the Louisiana Territory. This western city of around 200 homes welcomed the new governor with as much pomp and circumstance as they could. When Wilkinson landed on the levee, quote, a troop of cavalry escorted him as he rode on horseback up the slope to the central square, where he was greeted by a ragged volley of shots fired by 100 armed Indians, then by a sharper salute from the 240 soldiers drawn up for his inspection. This was followed by speeches of welcome in French, the language of the long-established Creole inhabitants, and in English, the language of the newcomers. The next day, in celebration of the 4th of July, Wilkinson and his officers retreated to dinner at a 300-foot-long table decorated with 18 gilded pyramids, 17 representing the number of states, each inscribed prudence, morality, wisdom, law, and the 18th decorated in gold letters reading, United States, glory and power, six semper omnia, so everything should be forever, on one face, and on the other, James Wilkinson, protection. The festivities carried forward throughout the night with the military band providing music for those assembled. Surely, Governor Wilkinson hoped that this goodwill would continue on, but as noted by Wilkinson biographer for Andrew Linkletter, this was the high point in Wilkinson's relations with the citizens of the Louisiana Territory. We'll turn back to Wilkinson's tenure as governor in another episode. But before we jump back to Burr, I should also share this note from Linkletter that, quote, After Fort Massac, every move made by the two men, Burr and Wilkinson, would come to be studied in detail by contemporaries and by historians in order to understand the roles they played in the Burr conspiracy. Turning back to the former vice president, Burr continued down the Mississippi River with various stops along the way, including one at Natchez in the Mississippi Territory before finally arriving in New Orleans on June 25th. In his three weeks there, Burr found himself very impressed by this port city. As he wrote to his daughter Theodosia, quote, "The city is larger than I expected, and there are found many more than would be supposed living in handsome style. They are cheerful, gay, and easy. I've promised to return here next fall. Burr used the occasion to get reacquainted with Edward Livingston, who we last encountered in our narrative in episode 3.6. For a quick recap on Livingston, he was part of the prominent Livingston family from New York and had represented that state in the U.S. House of Representatives during the disputed election of 1800, providing his vote on all 36 ballots for Jefferson. Because of this support, Livingston had been named as U.S. District Attorney in New York by the third president, while then-Governor George Clinton had also named him as Mayor of New York City. Since we last encountered Livingston, he had suffered a financial disaster as, quote, one of his financial agents defaulted, and Livingston found himself owing the U.S. government nearly $50,000. In order to deal with these circumstances, Livingston resigned as both District Attorney and Mayor and sold off his property in New York. That still wasn't enough to fully repay the debt, so Livingston realized that, with his opportunities quite limited in New York, he had to do something drastic to get back on his feet. Thus, Livingston moved to New Orleans to take advantage of the possibilities to be found in the newly acquired Louisiana Purchase and establish himself, quote, both as a lawyer and as an investor in local real estate. When Burr met up with his fellow New Yorker again in New Orleans, Livingston was well on his way to reestablishing his reputation and financial footing, and he would ultimately repay the U.S. government in full as well as return service in the federal government. But we'll get to all that in good time. Burr also used his time in the Crescent City to meet, quote, with members of a local organization called the Mexican Society of New Orleans, as well as others interested in his plans for an expedition to challenge Spanish rule in Mexico. As usual with Burdo, he also made contact with the former Spanish intendant of the Port of New Orleans, Juan Ventura Morales, who was discussed in episodes three point ten and three point eleven and had caused such distress when he closed the right of deposit for American merchants in eighteen oh two. Finally, though, Burr tore himself away from the Society of New Orleans and crossed Lake Pontchartrain to make his way across West Florida by land to return to Natchez, then proceeded, quote, into the unsettled country stretching northward of that riverside settlement to the borders of Tennessee. We'll leave Burr here for the time being, traversing what he proclaimed, quote, a vile country on the Natchez trace. As you can imagine, dear listener, there's still much more of Burr's story to come. Back in Washington, D.C., President Jefferson was eagerly awaiting word from the Lewis and Clark expedition. He had learned on June 24th that a keelboat from the expedition had returned to St. Louis in May and that, in addition to a report which should be on its way to him, a delegation of, quote, 45 chiefs from six different nations from the plains would at some point be traveling to the nation's capital for a visit. As the mail from the West was infrequent, Jefferson delayed his usual departure for Monticello to be on hand for the arrival of a letter from Meriwether Lewis. Finally, on July 13th, it arrived at the President's house along with, quote, Clark's journal covering the period May 1804 to March 1805, Clark's map of the Lower Missouri, and an invoice from Lewis listing the items coming in boxes from New Orleans. Though Lewis's letter dealt more with the state of the financial accounts related to the expedition and the plans related to the return of the keelboat, with natural specimens collected on their journey thus far, it still represented progress. And though Jefferson would be at Monticello when the boxes sent via New Orleans finally arrived in Washington, one can imagine the excitement felt by one who was so interested in natural history and science. The president was also seeing progress in terms of territorial organization of the lands of the Old Northwest. The Indiana Territory had voted in September 1804 to move to the second territorial grade of government, which established an elected bicameral legislature. However, as the move had been taken with little warning and the election organized quickly by Governor William Henry Harrison to ensure that the majority of votes in the election would be in favor of the transition to the second grade of government, Citizens from more distant parts of the territory became concerned about having little say-so in affairs in the territorial capital of Vincennes. It should be noted that, at this point, the territory stretched all the way from the southeastern corner of the modern state of Indiana over to the Mississippi River, then up to the Lake of the Woods, which is on the border of the modern state of Minnesota and the modern Canadian province of Ontario, then going back east into what is now the modern state of Michigan. There were rumblings at the time from white settlers in the Illinois country over Harrison's actions, but the greater consequence would come from further north and east in the port city of Detroit. Detroit predated the United States and was established back in 1701 by Antoine Lomé de la Morte, Sieur de Cadillac, as a military post to challenge British trading interests in the area. Like with the rest of what became the Northwest Territory, Detroit had been impacted by the power struggles of the Seven Years' War, then ended up in the United States following the American Revolution, though it remained ever at a distance on the frontier. Still, from the viewpoint of white settlers, the frontier was slowly drawing further west as new folks drifted in from the east and established homesteads and cities. Leading citizens of Detroit, however, grew concerned when Ohio chief statehood in 1803 and they found themselves thrown into the Indiana Territory with its capital Vincennes around 400 miles away. With such a wide gulf of geography between the two, it was feared that Detroit's interests would not be served by the territorial government and the city's prospects would suffer. Thus, leaders in the area lobbied the federal government in Washington, and finally, in January 1805, Jefferson approved the establishment of the new Michigan Territory, which would encompass the lands of the Lower Peninsula and part of what is now the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. July 1st, 1805 was the official date for the new territorial government to take control and Jefferson named William Hall of Massachusetts, a veteran of the Revolutionary War, as governor and Stanley Griswold, originally of Connecticut, as the territorial secretary. Slowly but surely, President Jefferson was seeing his plans to expand White Settlement westward coming to fruition. On other fronts, though, he was having less success in moving his agenda forward. We discussed in episode 3.27, Jefferson's nominations of Jacob Crown and as Secretary of the Navy and Robert Smith, the current Navy Secretary, as Attorney General in a cabinet reshuffle necessitated by Levi Lincoln's resignation. Both of the nominations had been confirmed by the Senate in March 1805, and the matter seemed settled upon the adjournment of Congress. Well... You can imagine how the president felt when he opened Crown & Shield's letter of March 27th, informing Jefferson that he had returned to his home in Salem, Massachusetts to, quote, find Mrs. Crown & Shield in so low a state of health that it would be quite unsafe for her to undertake a journey, even for the distance of a few miles from home. After detailing at length his wife's state of ill health, his reluctance to be separated from her, and the demands of supporting, quote, a family of young children, he finally, in the last paragraph, got around to the point, quote, I'm reduced to the necessity of informing you that I cannot accept the office lately assigned to me. Given the amount of time and effort that he had already put into trying to convince Crown and Shield to accept the post, it seems that at this point, Jefferson decided to cut his losses and let the matter rest. However, this put him back into the same quandary he was in previously. He couldn't allow Smith to move over as attorney general without having someone to succeed him at the Navy Department, and the Naval Secretary Post had proven since the beginning of his presidency to be the most difficult to fill. Likely to Smith's chagrin, when the president turned back to the search for a new cabinet official, it was to fill the attorney general position that he focused his efforts. Dusting off the list of contenders that we discussed back in episode 3.27, Jefferson turned yet again to the prospect of John Thompson Mason, but as Gallatin and Smith had warned when they had initially recommended him, Mason was not keen on the idea. On June 15th, Jefferson wrote to the Attorney General of South Carolina, John Julius Pringle, to offer him the post. Now, one has to wonder at Jefferson's reasoning in making this offer. Though Pringle had served as a U.S. District Attorney in George Washington's first term, he had been the Attorney General of South Carolina since December 1792 and had never served in any capacity in the government in the District of Columbia. As the U.S. Attorney General position was a part-time gig and Washington, D.C. was a good distance away from Pringle's home in Charleston, there was little to induce Pringle to accept. And unsurprisingly, on July 2nd, Pringle wrote back to President Jefferson, declining the offer. As evidenced in his pursuit of Crown and Shield, Jefferson was not one to take no for an answer, so he turned yet again to Mason, using Secretary of War Henry Dearborn as his proxy in this new approach. Unlike Crown and Shield, however, it seems that Mason was not quite so demure about asserting his desire, quote, to persevere in opposition to your wishes to withdraw myself as far as I can for the space of two years from everything but my own private affairs. By the point Mason was writing his letter, though, Jefferson's mind was on other matters. At the same time as he was waiting the report from the Lewis and Clark expedition, Jefferson and his administration was receiving alarming reports about privateers off the coast of Charleston, Chesapeake Bay, and Delaware Bay. Thus, he summoned his cabinet together on July 8th to consider the situation, and with the agreement of all of the secretaries except for Treasury Secretary Gallatin, it was decided, quote, to prepare and put in commission such naval vessels as had already been authorized by Congress. It would still be nearly two months before the president received word of the treaty with Tripoli, but with increasing activity off the coast of the U.S. and concerns about Spanish designs against New Orleans, it was clear to most in the administration, excepting Gallatin, that a new approach with a greater naval presence closer to home may be needed in the not-too-distant future. On a brighter note, though, Jefferson wrote to Gallatin that spring that, as they had worked so diligently to find areas to cut expenses and pay down the national debt, as well as with new revenues coming in from the new territories to the West, quote, it hastens the moment of liberating our revenue and of permitting us to begin upon canals, roads, colleges, etc. If they could just avoid international conflict and any unexpected expenses, the president saw a promising future ahead for his nation. Jefferson left Washington on July 15th to return to Monticello, but he would not be there long before leaving on the 26th for a brief visit to another estate, Poplar Forest, in order, quote, to lay out a tract of land for his Epps son-in-law in behalf of one of his late daughter Maria's children. Unfortunately for the president, his time at Monticello would not be graced by a visit from Secretary of State James Madison and his wife as Dolly Madison suffered from, quote, a tumor on her leg that necessitated the Madisons traveling in the opposite direction to seek medical treatment for her in Philadelphia. He would, however, finally achieve success in his quest for a new attorney general while on this sojourn away from the Capitol. Jefferson had been reluctant to approach the other recommendation that Gallatin and Smith had presented to him in the initial search process as he was a valuable ally to have in the U.S. Senate. But on August 7th, the president wrote to John Breckinridge asserting that, quote, I shall with the greater pleasure learn that you accede to my wishes in availing the public of your services, as your geographical position will enable you to bring into our councils a knowledge of the Western interests and circumstances, for which we are often at a loss and sometimes fail in our desires to promote them. To the relief of all, except for the Secretary of the Navy, who had been so close to taking the position himself, Breckenridge accepted the post and resigned from the Senate. While Breckenridge prepared to take up his new post, the president had to prepare for a return to Washington for the winter session of Congress. As he had done with his private estate, Monticello, Jefferson had inserted himself into the design work of the surveyor of public buildings, Benjamin Latrobe, in terms of the president's house. At some point likely in 1803 or 1804, Jefferson had drawn out his plans for the development of the landscaping at his public residence, and these plans had included an east wing and a west wing that would connect the house with the executive buildings on either side of it. His design for these wings were similar to those he had implemented at Monticello and is described by historian William Seale as follows, quote, These would be cut into the slope of the grade, as was the house, but held to a single story. They would appear from the high ground on the north to be no more than slightly elevated projections running out from the base of the house. Their shallow pitched roofs, almost flat, would form terraces or open-air promenade that stretched through the executive structures. Where the ground sloped on the south, the wings, fully revealed, would be the same height as the exposed basement, fronted with colonnades. White House and executive offices would thus be united by the passages, which would offer protection both from the weather and curious eyes. Work on the wings had started just prior to Jefferson's departure home to Virginia, so one can imagine that he would be interested to see the progress that had been made in his absence. By the time of his return to Washington in early October, however, he had an even greater reason to be excited about the season to come. As he had every year of his presidency, Jefferson had, in the spring, tried to convince his only living child, Martha Jefferson Randolph, to come to Washington during the next congressional session. Her husband would be coming to the nation's capital anyway, so he could escort her and their children to the president's house. Unlike Jefferson's previous attempts, though, this time, Martha agreed to make the journey. Both back in Albemarle and in Washington, much preparation was done prior to Martha's arrival, for, though she was the mother of six at the time of her travel, by the time they got set to return to Virginia, one more child would be headed home with them. Though Jefferson himself was in debt, he knew that the Randolphs were in a difficult financial position and thus sent his daughter $100 to cover any travel expenses. He also arranged for Dolly Madison to purchase, quote, wigs, combs, shawls, veils, and handkerchiefs for Martha from Philadelphia and rented a carriage to transport the family around Washington while they were in town. Upon their arrival in the capital city, Martha had to figure out how to approach the social scene. Not only was she the daughter of President Jefferson, but also, unlike the last time she was in Washington, Martha was now the wife of a congressman. Those two roles had different implications for social protocol, and though the role of the president's daughter carried a higher degree of gravitas, Martha opted to approach D.C. society on the same level as any other congressional wife. For a few weeks in the later stage of her pregnancy, Martha was able to, quote, attend dinners and exchange visits and sit with the other ladies in the galleries of Congress, renewing her acquaintance with some of the foremost women in the republic. The Randolphs, however, were not the only notable guests visiting the nation's capital at the time. In the aftermath of the Barbary War, there were details that had to be worked out, including settling the matter of Tunisian vessels that had been taken by the Mediterranean Squadron prior to the peace settlement when they attempted to run the blockade of Tripoli. The Tunisian government decided to approach the Americans on the matter on their side of the Atlantic. And thus, on November thirtieth, eighteen 1805, the first Muslim envoy to the U.S., Suleiman Melimelni arrived in Washington, D.C. If you haven't listened to my interview with Jeff Einboden yet, be sure to check out that episode as we talked about Meli in the course of our discussion. President Jefferson invited the Tunisian envoy to dinner at the president's house, but had to be mindful of the timing of the dinner, as Meli Melni was in Washington during Ramadan, the sacred month in the Islamic calendar when Muslims fast until sundown. Thus, when Jefferson welcomed the envoy for dinner, he ensured that the food was not served in chill sunset. Jefferson would have meli for dinner again a few days later, but he also on that occasion welcomed some other special guests who had traveled from the west. Around the same time that the Tunisian envoy came from the east, a delegation of native peoples that Lewis and Clark had invited in the course of their journey to travel to Washington arrived in the capital city. Commentators at the time, including our old friend Margaret Bayard Smith, noted the contrast of having distinguished guests from various parts of the world visiting and socializing in Washington circles around the same time. Meli Melny and the native peoples likewise apparently compared their respective cultural backgrounds, with Smith writing about the Tunisian and a native individual noting their similar hairstyles. As the last few days of 1805 ticked away, it was clear that it would truly be a winter season to remember in Washington, D.C. Little could anyone have imagined, though, what changes were in store at home and abroad in 1806. Changes that we will begin to discuss in our next episode. For now, though, our time is drawing to a close. Special thanks again to Alicia for providing the intro quote for this episode. And be sure to check out Civics and Coffee. Special thanks also to our audio editor, Andrew Foncook. With so much of my life currently in flux, it is good to know that I have Andrew's support to keep the podcast moving forward. If you'd like to get his assistance with your podcast or next audio project, reach out to him at P-A-N-K-A-C-E place, that's all one word, at gmail.com. Special thanks also to the Itinerant Band for allowing us to use their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty for the intro and outro music for this episode. Links for more information on the efforts of all these amazing individuals can be found on the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y On the website, you can also find the sources used for this episode, past episodes, and links to more information about every U.S. president to date. If you have any questions or comments, I can be reached by email at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, or you can reach out to me on social media. I can be found on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at PresidenciesPodcast. Again, all one word. Last, but certainly not least, I'd like to thank you for listening. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends.